Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to episode 42 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Norm Robillard and we're coming to you from a live recording of the Healthy Gut Podcast at his home just outside of Boston. We had such a gorgeous day and I'm really looking forward to sharing this episode with you. We sat in his garden, it was a beautiful summer's day and we talked about how we can achieve a healthy microbiome. Dr. Norm Robillard is the founder of the Digestive Health Institute and is a leading gut health expert. He turned his own suffering from chronic acid reflux into a mission to create the drug and antibiotic-free fast-track diet for functional gastrointestinal disorders, including SIBO, IBS and other health-related conditions. The diet has been endorsed by the New York Times best-selling co-author Dr. Michael Eads, GI surgeon Dr. Alan Hu, many certified nutritionists and healthcare providers. Dr. Norm's Fast Track Digestion book series, Fast Track Diet mobile app, as well as his individual consultation program have been helping people around the globe get off drugs and find relief through diet, behaviour modification and identifying and addressing unique underlying causes based on individuals. Today our discussion is broad and interesting. We start off with talking about the fast track diet and uh, what the fermentation potential is and how you can calculate it. And then we move into the microbiota and microbiome. And I ask that question, what's the difference? <laughs> I've been wanting to know myself for a while. And what we can be doing to generate a robust microbiota. And also some of the things that we can be doing in our own homes and gardens or balconies, as is the case with me, that can be supporting a really great recycling system and how we can be growing our own fruit and veg so that we can be sure we're reducing the amount of chemical sprays that we're ingesting through our food. I hope you enjoy today's podcast with Dr. Norm Robillard. Dr. Norm Robillard, it's wonderful to have you back on the Healthy Gut Podcast. Thanks for coming on the show. Yes, thanks for having me. And we're sitting here in your gorgeous garden. Uh, we're coming live from your beautiful house just outside of Boston. And we've got a gorgeous audience with us, which is really lovely to we have really people do. here. <laughs> and uh, I'm normally sitting at my computer screen with nobody. So it's really nice to not only have you sitting next to me, but also these... Um, gorgeous people who have come along on their Sunday afternoon to join us. Absolutely. So we're going to talk a little bit about the fast track diet to start with and I'd love for you to explain to the listeners what it is. Obviously if they want to, anyone listening, if you want to hear more about the fast track diet you can go back to my episode with Norm where we discussed the fast track diet in detail in a previous episode. But let's start with a recap on the fast track diet and why it can be so beneficial to support our microbiota. Sure. Uh, the fast track diet is a, you could call it a diet system or a program. It's got some different elements to it. Uh, but it is designed to treat SIBO and dysbiosis. And, uh, you know, just to tell you a little bit about, uh, about SIBO, it, is, it has to do with bacteria in our gut. 
and, and why do we have these bacteria in our gut? Well, like all animals, we evolved with these bacteria that break down foods that we can't, such as complex polysaccharides, and they produce fats and vitamins that nourish us. And so that has given us a survival advantage. So that's why they're there. But of course, there's a number of things that can go wrong, and, and these bacteria can become out of balance or overgrow. And in many cases, the bacteria from the large intestine, all right, there's something like 100, 100 trillion bacteria in the large intestine, uh, belonging to two or 300 to 1,000 different species, a very complex ecosystem. Some of those bacteria can get past the ileocecal valve and move back into the small intestine, which should have really very few bacteria there. And the ones that are there are, are supposed to be there, the lactic acid bacteria and so forth. And so when some of these large bowel bacteria move back into the small intestine and begin to overgrow there, remember that's where our own critical digestive machinery is, uh, the villi and microvilli. And on top of these little microvilli are, are enzymes that complete the final breakdown of carbohydrates so they can be absorbed into the bloodstream. And so when that happens, you get, in the words of Elaine Gottschall, who uh, coined the term breaking the vicious cycle, you get this vicious cycle of carbohydrate malabsorption, bacterial overgrowth, and then more damage to the villi and microvilli and more overgrowth. So that's pretty much, you know, a high-level summary of what's going on. So how do we deal with that with the diet? Well, there's three pieces to the diet, really. And the first one is called the FP calculation, which stands for fermentation potential. And here's, here's why I came up with this formula. The, we were targeting five difficult-to-digest carbohydrates, lactose, fructose, resistant starch, fiber, and sugar alcohols. But how do you quantitate how much of each of those types of sugars are in all of these different foods that you might want to eat. And so what I finally realized I could do was use the glycemic index calculation, change the equation around so that instead of measuring how quickly carbohydrates from any food that you test go into the bloodstream compared to glucose, that's what the GI calculation is, I turn the equation around to measure how many of these carbohydrates would persist in the small intestine, and hence that's, that's the FP calculation. So the first part of the diet is all about just limiting these FP points. And it's really like a Weight Watchers program, but instead of for us, we're putting our gut bacteria on a diet so that the body has a chance to clear these organisms out, the excess overgrowth. So that's one piece. The second piece has everything to do with behaviors and practices, pro-digestion strategies to ensure that the carbohydrates that we are consuming are being absorbed, broken down and absorbed as efficiently as possible. So, and, the, and there's many elements to that, but it, it involves how you uh, select your foods, prepare them, store them, and consume them. Something as simple as eating slowly and chewing well, and there's a whole story about amylase enzyme and gene copy number and so forth. But it's those types of principles which are really important. And then the last part has to do with a deep look to see, and this will be different for everybody, what some of the potential underlying conditions are that can contribute to this problem and will make it worse. And I'm convinced that the biggest problem for most people is simply consuming too many of these carbohydrates and snack foods and plates of pasta and too much bread, all of these things. So uh, we need to really, uh, you know, limit that up front. But then there's all of these other problems, ileocecal valve, motility, low stomach acid, uh, pancreas problems where you won't have enough digestive enzymes, or uh, liver issues, for instance, because liver is involved in uh, bile acid pools, which, by the way, bacteria help regulate those pools. So that's all about the underlying causes. So there's more about that in the book uh, and the mobile app, and so that's kind of a high-level overview. It is. And one of the things that has been one of my techniques for recovering from SIBO and really helping support my digestive tract has been slowing down my eating and it's really interesting that you talk about that as being a tactic to support the digestive tract. Uh, I didn't know the reasons why I was doing it other than the fact that I felt better when I had chewed more and I'd 
slowed down the speed at which I was taking food in, putting my knife and fork down between every mouthful. Um, and now I know that there's, you know, <laughs> yeah. there's so, a good reason for yeah. why I felt good. Yeah. So a, a natural behavior, something you, your mother or grandmother may have even told you. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of reasons for that. So very good. So we're going to move on to what does a robust microbiota or microbiome look like? And before we get started, I've got a question for you. And it is, what is the difference between microbiota and microbiome? Because I don't know. And I don't know that all my listeners know either. Mm, yeah. I'd love that explanation yeah. to start with. Sure. That, that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, they're commonly referred to interchangeably, but really the microbiome, the word biome, does have everything to do with the cumulative genes of all of these bacteria in our gut. And all of their genes put together, which outnumber human genes about 100 to 1. And most of those genes are focused on how to break down a huge variety of complex carbohydrates. And these bacteria are doing that collaboratively with their, with their gene pool. Now, microbiota, that is literally referring to the microorganisms themselves. There you go. <laughs> now we have the answer. So let's talk about what a robust microbiota looks like. And how do we achieve it? Yeah, that's, that's the million-dollar question. Um, and, and, of course, having a healthy uh, gut microbiota uh, has uh, everything to do with not only digestive health, but systemic health, overall health. And, uh, it's, it, I mean, it's very critical. We know, as we learn more and more, we really know the two go hand in hand. So there's a couple of different schools of thought on, on what, what is the best strategy to, to keep a healthy microbiota? And uh, it's interesting that there's a, a, a huge uh, number of people that really believe or at least um, uh, recommend increasing the amount of fiber in the diet. And, and I can see why the, the thought is that we're starving a microbiota, that we're not feeding them enough, and that's the problem. And so adding more fiber and, and adding prebiotics is a recommendation. And uh, the, the idea, I'm not sure exactly where it originated, but that the average American only consumes about uh, 12 grams of fiber a day and should have 27 to 35 grams. But there's a lot of um, issues with that that I have. First of all, for young, healthy people that can tolerate it, fine, ha have more fiber. But for people, you know, like us, I've had chronic acid reflux, and you've had some digestive issues as well. We often don't tolerate too much fiber and other fermentable carbs. It's people with fiber intolerance, with lactose intolerance, fructose intolerance, and so forth. And uh, the studies that loosely support this concept are observational studies or there's studies in uh, mice. And, and mice are grain eaters. It's not that relevant to humans. And there's been larger uh, better organized uh, observational studies that pretty much refute most of the benefits of fiber um, to begin with. But for, um, for people with digestive health issues, I really think it's not the greatest advice. And here's an example. In 2005, Professor John Hunter, uh, Addenbrooke Hospital in UK, he uh, took a group of people with IBS and put them on a no-fiber diet and, the and they measured how much gas these people produced, and it dropped dramatically, as well as their IBS symptoms. And uh, it was equal to the, uh, the control in the, in the study was metronidazole, a very powerful antibiotic. And just cutting out fiber was as good as that. So uh, I would recommend the opposite. So for a healthy, uh, robust gut microbiota, I would, first of all, not overfeed them because I think in, in this, in the West at least, there's easy access to so much food and snacks and that we tend to overeat these things. So I would limit that. I would also just do some basic uh, things that are somewhat common sense. Avoid taking antibiotics uh, and other drugs and avoid, you know, chemicals and pesticides as much as you can. Just stay healthy and stay away from those things. You can't always do it. I had Lyme disease myself last October, and I ended up on uh, doxycycline, and it really, uh, it really did. It was rough on my gut, but sometimes you have to do it, but when you can avoid it, uh, avoid it. 
So, I mean, and there's, there's just so many other things you can do. We talked about the behaviors and practices. Uh, we, you and I have talked before on fasting, intermittent fasting, and even just leaving breaks between meals. Uh, so the migrating motor complex has time to really clear out the bacteria um, in your digestive tract. So. That's the fiber piece is interesting because, you know, so many people, uh, particularly if they're constipated, they'll go to their doctor and say, Doc, I'm constipated. And the first thing the doc generally says is eat more fiber. The standard American diet, which is pretty much the same as the standard Australian diet, has a lot of kind of carbohydrates and quite a bit of fiber in it. How much fiber is, do you know have an idea of how much fiber we're kind of on average getting when we haven't moved to a lower carb or lower fermentable fiber diet and, and what that means in terms of our gas output? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. And, and if I may, I'd like to answer that in a slightly different way. Because with this FP calculation that I created, um, I'm now measuring in FP, that value is in grams. And so I'm measuring fiber, all of these many different types of fiber. Uh, it's eight or ten or more types of uh, f uh, dietary fiber, but also lactose, fructose, resistant starch, and sugar alcohols. So that's all, in a way, when those are malabsorbed, and that is what the FP points are, those are like dietary fiber. And so I look at that as a f uh, fermentation burden together. And so I'm not thinking about the 12 grams a day or the 25 grams a day that, that people consume supposedly in, in fiber, but rather the entire burden. And so when I've done the calculation on uh, a, the typical American diet, you end up with about 150 or more of these FP points, so 150 grams of fermentable material, which is a lot. And if you translate that into intestinal gas, uh, we know that 30 grams of carbohydrate that's not digested will allow bacteria to produce 10 liters of gas. So if you consumed 150, that's 50 liters of gas. Wow, yeah. no wonder sometimes <laughs> we feel like we can propel yeah. ourselves to the moon. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. Sure. So it's really interesting hearing about, uh, you know, just how much gas we can be producing by eating that much fiber when we're told that that's the recommended amount generally or, or more than but now we're eating a lot of food that no wonder a lot of us are in digestive discomfort absolutely and and i'm glad i'm not anymore <laughs> so am i so we've talked a little bit about what a healthy microbiota looks like and and the things we might be able to do to help achieve it what does it look like when it's not healthy hmm, the opposite scenario yeah, I mean, and as we said, having a healthy microbiota is really important. And so uh, we had talked about some of those problems that can lead to SIBO and dysbiosis, and that really is the worst-case scenario of this health unhealthy microbiota. So uh, motility, and, and we, we listed along uh, a number of things. And so when that happens, you know, what, what are these consequences? And... Uh, one of them that was involved in perpetuating it, right, was the mucosal damage, the damage to the microvilli and the enzymes. We talked about that. But also, you can end up with a leaky gut, and that's very much tied to autoimmune reactions. So that's another, um, you know, some fallout from having an unhealthy uh, microbiota. But also, if you just look at, if you follow some of the research on what the uh, what these microbes do for us, um, breaking down these complex carbohydrates, you know, that you can throw that off. Uh, they are involved in uh, uh, fat storage, um, uh, regulation of appetite, protecting us from pathogens like a C. diff infection. So all of these things can be thrown off by having this imbalance. And at the same time, you're going to have those symptoms, the bloating, uh, altered bowel habits, uh, abdominal pain, cramps, and, and all of the things that go with typical functional gastrointestinal disorders. We're sitting here in your garden and uh, we've got a beautiful vegetable patch uh, next to us, which we're going to go to shortly to talk about, you know, how we can eat to help the state of our gut and also what we can be doing at home just to be also having a little positive impact on the environment. You've got a green thumb. Uh, 
Do you grow low FP vegetables? Uh, I do. I've been gardening for um, most of my adult life and, and composting. And, uh, you know, the, not only do these, you know, lower carb, low FP vegetables, a few that are a little bit higher, um, but not only do they provide minerals and, and nutrients and nutrition, but also the, by having a diverse diet, and, and, and we have, in, is when we go over the garden, you'll see there's about 18 different vegetables in just this small plot. By, by consuming a whole variety of these vegetables, you are really challenging your microbiota because each, each food tastes different, right? It has a different mix of macronutrients, and it will challenge different microorganisms in your gut to spring into action. So I think eating just the same three things every day, when some people get stuck in a loop like that, if they feel like they found a few foods that make them feel better, but at some point, you really should move back towards a more diverse diet. And that's the way we eat with, with this garden. And, of course, it's um, completely uh, organic over the last uh, oh, seven or eight years. I've really uh, recognized, you know, that why, why are we using all these chemicals? Question that. And so I've literally moved away from all chemicals. There's no chemicals in this garden for many years now. But I do use a few products, and I'll, I'll just show those to you. Okay, this is Captain Jack's dead bug. And this is uh, an insecticide, but it's natural, made by bacteria called, uh, and, it, and the molecules are spinosad, uh, and, and it's a combination of spinosin A and spinosad D. But these come from bacteria, so at least it's organic, and you only use them when you really need to. You know, when you have an infestation, there's, there's an option there. If the problem were more moths and butterflies, uh, lepidopteran-type species, which can really, you know, trash your tomatoes, uh, any kind of cabbage or broccoli or Brussels sprouts, um, this product, Thuricide, is, uh, it's actually a mixture of uh, Bacillus thuringiensis spores and crystals, um, which I know a lot. I used to map genes in this organism, actually, when I worked in a bacillus lab. Uh, but the, these parasporal crystals, they're toxic to the lepidopterans when the caterpillars ingest the spores in their alkaline gut. It, it kills them. So this is a good way to battle the little um, caterpillars. And then another uh, common one that, uh, that is used all over the world is, is neem oil, which is also just a great way to um, treat a number of um, you know, insect problems. So these three, that's it. And after that, it's picking them off with your hands and just doing the best you can to, to not lose plants. It's really interesting you've got neem oil. Neem is commonly used in the treatment of SIBO. It's a, it's a common um, herbal treatment. I took neem myself. So did you really? I did. No kidding. So there you go. Fascinating. <laughs> it can All right. I can give our... you some if you need some. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it can protect our plants as well as our guts. And one of the things that I've um, been really conscious of in more recent times, and I wish I could take credit for having the green thumb in my household, but I can't. It's my partner who does all the growing because plants die and as soon as I come near them, I, I don't know what happens. I try so hard and they just don't survive. Um, but thinking about the, the vegetables and fruits and meats that I'm eating and what has happened to them in um, their life before they got to me. And I've really started to become very conscious of particularly fruits and vegetables and how much is sprayed on them before mm. I eat them and what that's doing to all of the organisms living within within me. And it's really gorgeous sitting here looking at your vegetable garden. You've got so many different varieties of vegetables growing and we are going to talk through what you've got um, in a moment. But just even if you're able to grow something and, you, and have organic, purely organic veg that you've grown yourself, over a lifetime that has a really um, large impact on the quality of nutrition that you're getting as well as just reducing the chemical load. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and uh, you know, you're not just eating the vegetables during the season because we also make lacto-fermented pickles, and those will keep for quite some time in the basement. You bring them up one bottle at a time and put them in the fridge. Uh, you can freeze vegetables, and we do that quite a bit, especially, see this couple of uh, zucchini squash plants over there, they will produce a massive amount. So you can cut those up, kind of parboil them quickly, dry them off, and 
uh, wrap them up and freeze them. And so you, a lot of these things you can eat right through until the next season, including uh, you know the butternut squash. They'll keep very well in the basement. So uh, it is a chance to at least reduce the number of uh, chemicals in, in your diet. So it's, we feel like it's a good thing to do. And also we, have, uh, we do have a list uh, for all of you, a handout, and it lists what the uh, plants are that are in the, veg, uh, in the garden. And there's a few also around the yard. There's some raspberries over there. There's some mint growing in other places. But it lists the serving size and the uh, FP values. So um, just a little bit of an aid there. Wonderful. That's great. Let's head over to the garden. Okay, great. So we're down here at your garden, and it's a beautiful garden. You've got so much produce growing here. Can you talk us through what you've actually got growing? Sure, be glad to. Um, you know, it's not a huge garden, but in, even a small garden like this, we have about 18 different vegetables in there. And there's some berries and some mint growing in other parts of the yard. So there's a lot of stuff here. And But I wanted to talk through some of these um, vegetables that we consume in terms of these FP values we talked about. So um, over here where you have, you know, kale and spinach, uh, lettuce. I do grow a lot of uh, dill, uh, the cilantro down there. Most of these, are they almost have no FP points. They're very low, um, less than one, certainly. Uh, and then with herbs, you may be having a half cup the most, maybe some in your, I mean, a quarter cup in your salad. Uh, lettuce, you might have a cup or two in, in the kale as well. But really, the points are quite low. Uh, and by the way, we do grow a lot of uh, dill because we, uh, if you look uh, way back over there, there's, uh, there's Boston uh, pickling cukes, and we do make a lot of dill pickles. So hence, growing the dill really helps with that process. And luckily, my neighbors have a grapevine over there, so I sneak over there at night and I get the grape leaves to put on the bottom of the uh, pickle jar. No, they know, and they're okay with it. So, but as we uh, look at some of these other plants, there's um, peppers. Uh, we have some hot peppers and some regular, I think a yellow banana pepper there. Uh, they're fairly low, too. Um, a, a one medium-sized pepper is a, uh, you know, these are all in your list. You can refer to them. A uh, couple of FP points. Um, tomatoes are a little bit higher, a medium tomato, maybe uh, three FP points. Not too bad. Um, better than tomato sauce, which has a lot of sugar in it, commercial tomato sauce. So um, if you don't eat too many, tomatoes are great. We, we do grow a lot of those plants. And... You know, they, we use them for a lot of different uh, things. Uh, eggplant also is um, a little bit higher. One cup is four FP points. And uh, then zucchini squash is in the same range. We, uh, as I said, we freeze that because it's a prolific uh, plant. And the one cup of that is two FP points, so um, between two and four. Uh, we do have one higher uh, FP plant over there, and that's the butternut squash. Uh, because it's a little more towards the potato family, a little more starchy. So for that, um, one cup is nine FP points. So for somebody like us on, on one of these diets, we're watching our points and we're trying to get a bloating under control. You know, maybe a half a cup is a better serving size and eat slowly and chew well. As, as we said, that should really become, you know, internalized. And so you never have to think about it again. That's after 14 years of eating this way. That's the way that's the way I am. And uh, we did lose some broccoli to um, some insects this spring, which was a shame. Uh, I thought it was, I thought we had a problem with rabbits, so I, I refenced it, and it turns out it was actually insects from the compost. And so putting compost uh, in the garden too close to planting, uh, some of these insects that normally break down just dead, decaying plants, we'll go after some of the young uh, seedlings. So for many years in a row, we have had um, you know, huge amounts of broccoli, and this year, um, they were taken out. So we do have Brussels sprouts over there. They're doing okay. There's parsley and some, uh, some onions and strawberries. Uh, Brussels sprouts there, um, one cup is seven FP. So there's a bit of FP there too, but a half cup of uh, Brussels sprouts with a nice piece of salmon or fish is, is a great serving size. And it's also one of the higher protein vegetables, about 4% protein in Brussels sprouts and they're great in soups and everything. So each year the garden will be a little bit different, but for the most part I do focus on at least some of these basic low FP vegetables. 
What's really nice is that you can just pop out to the garden and um, pick a few vegetables freshly and then have them for dinner and or lunch uh, if you work from home. And it's just wonderful to be able to eat the food that you've grown. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's just great to to drive home and just buy some chicken and everything else comes out of the garden. I mean, it's just, it's fun and it feels good. And for everyone listening, uh, Norm and his partner, Ria, have been very generous in, in putting me up while I've been here in Boston. And so I've got to taste this gorgeous produce. <laughs> and I tell you what, it just is so flavoursome. The comparison, well, there is no comparison really to um, homegrown produce and what you buy in the store. And on our first night, we had a um, just a lovely, simple green salad with some fresh herbs that came from this garden. And it was so incredibly delicious. It was really mm-hmm. lovely. It is tasty. And it's free, which is even better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can, uh, if you're worried about budget, I think having like growing your own produce can be a really great way to, to save some money sure. and also be sure. doing good things for your gut. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you've got some uh, leaves here. Oh, yes. So um, the reason I, I picked three types of leaves from the garden before we came over here, uh, including uh, spinach leaf, which is already wilting, um, a kale and one of the leaves from the Brussels sprouts uh, because these along with many other green leafy vegetables according to the latest research uh, are loaded with something called sulfoquinovos. It's just a very unusual sugar that contains sulfur and no one ever knew about it before and there's n- never been to my knowledge another sugar found that has sulfur in it and you know, it could be, you could think of it as, well, that's an interesting oddity. But it's more than an oddity because the sulfoquinovos in here, if you add up all the plants that it's in that we harvest every year, that's something like 10 billion tons of this stuff being produced every year. And the story just keeps getting more interesting. The, this molecule, sulfoquinovos, can be broken down by, guess what, gut bacteria. And if they have a particular enzyme and just the typical uh, glycolytic uh, pathways to break down sugars, along with one key enzyme, they can break down the sulfur-containing sugar. And so it's important for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, we need sulfur. And why do we need sulfur? Because it's in our proteins. It's in two amino acids, cysteine. And uh, you might remember that makes the disulfide bonds that can help uh, proteins become very complex in the tertiary structure, uh, but it's also in the uh, amino acid methionine. So there are these natural sulfur cycles. Scientists have wondered, well, how do these cy- cycles work? Gut bacteria are involved. And what's interesting is one of the strains they found that can break this down is a strain of E. coli that it turns out is very critical for gut lining integrity, and it breaks down sulfoquinovos. So I just thought that was kind of it's one of those stories interesting to follow and and... It's, it's, I think it's going to be uh, you know, something that we recognize as more important than we never understood before. Part of the story with growing your own vegetables is that you do create some waste. And the next thing we're going to go and have a look at and talk about is your compost pile. Yes. Um, not only uh, are you putting your vegetable scraps and fruit scraps on your compost pile, but your compost pile is then recycling back to feed your vegetables and fruits, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And before we go over there, maybe we should just take a moment and talk about dirt and soil. So if you just look at just a little bit of garden soil, I mean, what, what's in there? There's, there's water, minerals, bacteria, some fungi, some other organisms, insects, but there's also a lot of organic material. And that's where adding, the, you know, recycling your, fu- your food scraps, your coffee grounds, uh, lawn clippings, and so forth, you can actually regenerate the organic material in there because it will be getting consumed by plants when you're growing plants. So, uh, yeah, we can take a walk to the compost pile. Let's do it. See you right. at the compost pile. Sure. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
Hey guys, I hope you've been enjoying today's episode. I wanted to let you know that it has been brought to you by the SIBO cookbooks. I'm so excited to have this series of cookbooks that are now available to help you on your journey, making cooking for SIBO so much easier and giving you inspiration in the kitchen. Just because we're eating for a special diet doesn't mean it needs to be restricted. The good news is the cookbooks are now available both in Australia and North America. So if you've been wanting to get your hands on an edition that uses Fahrenheit and pounds and ounces and that you're seeing recipes and ingredients using words that you recognize and love, then make sure you head to breathtests.com to grab your copy of the North American edition of the SIBO cookbooks. They are dispatched for American and Canadian customers locally so you only need to pay postage from a local level and for those of you in Australia or the rest of the world make sure you head to thehealthygut.co where you can grab your copy of the Australian cookbook. Now let's get back to the show. We're standing over here by your compost pile, and what a pile it is. It's uh, oh yeah, it's quite large, <laughs> and I can see that there's um, some old food scraps in here. There's lots of sticks. Uh, there's grass clippings, plenty of bugs crawling around. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me about why you compost. Uh, well, I've been doing this, again, like gardening most of my life. Um, and a, But a lot of what I learned about composting was a lot of kind of hands-on, how to do it, what to do, what not to do. Um, but lately I've been doing a little more reading, and there's been some newer research on, on actually what's in a compost pile in terms of, of microorganisms. And so I'm kind of curious about that uh, since I do a lot of thinking by my compost pile. Um, you know, there's a couple of basic rules. So I think it's it's good to just put those out front. Uh, you don't want a lot of animals around the compost pile. You get a few, but if you avoid putting dairy, cheese, meats, and so forth in the compost pile, uh, you you'll have a healthier. You know, really keep the just the plants, clippings from the yard and plants, uh, so you can avoid some of the animals. But um, you know, I've been thinking a little more about the microbiology of the compost pile and how it is. How is it similar and different from the microorganisms uh, in our gut? And there's a couple of obvious differences. You know, when you when you compost, you're always out here uh, flipping it over, turning it over, and that's because you want more air in the pile, and it helps these um, uh, plants and, and sticks and things break down more quickly. In our gut, it's really the opposite. You have almost uh, a completely anaerobic condition in the gut where there's no oxygen. So what's the difference? Here it's going to be different organisms that tolerate oxygen. That's one thing. But down under the pile you will have some pockets where the oxygen is used up and so you'll have these anaerobes which are more similar perhaps to those in our gut. Now if you just look at a little bit of this, I mean it looks like dirt, right? Yeah it does. It's sort of brown, dark brown and dirt looking. (laughs) Yeah. And so it will have some minerals in it from the foods you put in here and, and the materials, but it won't have a lot of the ground up rock and so we're, you know, it'll differ from soil. It's really the organic part of the soil. Um, and the other thing was interesting in my reading was, you know, what is the ratio of like bacteria and fungi? I always thought that there was a lot of fungi in compost and, and certainly there is some, but it is mostly bacteria. And uh, so in even like this small amount, even like uh, you know, a gram or two of soil can contain up to a billion bacteria. And yet there's only about a million uh, fungi, you know, molds and so forth. So um, it's mostly bacteria. And the other thing that made me think there was more fungi in here is that it, a lot of times, of course, the, the, the pile is always changing. Uh, it's always growing and heating up and cooling down. A lot of times I'll see kind of whitish filaments running through that, which seemed characteristic of a mold, uh, fungi. But it turns out that, that the, uh, there's a bacteria in here that's about 
of all of the bacteria called actinomyces. Like a bacterium, but it's filamentous. And so that's interesting. And then furthermore, the you know, there's been studies on compost piles now that are using the same techniques that we use, that scientists use to look at the organisms in our own gut. And that's called 16S, uh, ribosomal gene sequencing. They're now using that typing technology on compost piles, and it's really interesting that we're finding some of the same, you know, groupings. The Firmicutes, right, we have those in our gut, Clostridia, um, uh, Lactobacillus are another one of the um, Firmicutes, right, that's in pickles. Um, proteobacteria, there's your E. coli, um, Bacteroides in our gut, Bacteroides uh, theta iota micron is one of the more, you know, competent microbes in our gut. And so they're in the compost pile too, which makes sense. They're in here, they're in the soil, they get on the vegetables, and some make their way to our gut, which is a good thing. It's so interesting. And the other thing that I found really interesting was the temperature of the compost mm. pile. Can you talk to us about that? Sure. Yeah, good point. Uh, yeah, we were out here the other night, and we turned this over, and it was quite hot. And so sometimes it will heat up, it will cool down. Uh, it, the heat is generated completely by the microorganisms and their activity. And so if you have uh, a good amount of material, this is a little more mature over this side, and I'm putting some of the new stuff back there. So this will tend to cool down a little bit, a slower process, and it's a little more refined. As you can tell, it's, it's resembling soil at this point. Whereas the more active portions of the pile, they can heat up quite a bit. Compost piles literally can catch on fire. So Which they can just, get hot. <laughs> it's, just a, it's just incredible, really. What I really like about this, and this goes to my, I don't know, environmental side, that I really like the fact that by doing a compost pile, and we are going to talk about worm farms shortly, oh, yes. that you can be having a significant impact in the volume of waste that you're producing oh, as a household. Absolutely. And uh, the thing that we've noticed is that by just getting rid of our plant-based materials to our and giving them to our worms, our trash has, it's not mm. even halved. I'd say it's mm. one-tenth of what it was. And I would That's imagine correct. that you would f see the same thing with your compost pile. Exactly. And, and even cardboard boxes and paper bags, it adds to the carbon. And you don't want too much. You see some grass clippings over there. I just mowed the lawn the other day. That's very rich in nitrogen. You don't want too much nitrogen. You want to balance that with carbon. So the leaves and the cardboard and the paper bags uh, all, all help. And and we are just like you. We, we see... Uh, the trash bins out at the road on uh, Wednesday mornings with trash coming out the tops of them. And ours, we have a little bag at the bottom. Because we do, we compost, we compost an awful lot of material. And, and of course, everybody's recycling a lot of, you know, the plastics and things too. So, yeah, it's, it's a good thing. It is a good thing. And, and knowing that uh, a lot of the microorganisms that are living in a compost pile uh, in us as well. I can see the really lovely cycle of life here in that uh, you compost, you get this really nutrient-dense uh, material mm -hmm. that you can then put on your plants, which help your plants grow, which I'm sure provide great uh, microorganism diversity to what you then consume because you eat the plants Absolutely. and any of the kind of waste material from those plants comes back to the compost and it's it's a closed loop really. It, it really is nice it's just between you the sun and the soil and, and some water. Yeah it's great. Yeah it's really lovely you know I've never been a green thumb but uh, because you know as I said earlier plants die when I even just look at them which is awful but I really love the process and I'm so glad I've got a partner who's a green thumb and I can spend time with people like yeah. you who who are green thumbs so let's uh let's talk next about worm farms so we'll go we'll sit back it. down I, again you and know and we saw a worm in here the other night but sometimes we have a lot of worms sometimes we have uh you know the pill bugs and and ants and other things so I'm actually looking forward to hearing about worms and how to get more worms in my pile yeah <laughs> let's do it Okay, so let's talk a little bit about worm farming, and this is actually an area that I can talk a bit about, but it, it's in line with composting, and, and that is around doing something useful with food waste, and you put your vegetable um, scraps on the pile, and you can also put on your compost pile, and you can put paper and can you put cardboard in yours? Yeah, absolutely. Fact, um, it's, it's a good thing to do. You don't want too much, um, too much nitrogen, and the, and the cardboard is uh, things like that is more carbon. So you want a mixture of carbon and nitrogen. 
So what my partner and I have been doing, we're really conscious about the impact we're having on the environment, but also how we can be growing what we can and supporting the vegetables and, and, and herbs that we're growing. So um, he went out and ordered a worm farm, which he ordered online. It's just come in a tub. It's like a big storage tub. And in it were worms and some, and some basic dirt. And every bit of vegetable and fruit scrap except for citrus, onion and garlic goes into the worm farm, which is awesome because our waste has just been decreased enormously from what we used to throw in the trash. And our worms are growing and thriving. They're multiplying. We've had to extend the worm farm. So it comes with several tubs and you just put a new tub on top and a new tub on top of that. And we blitz all of our um, vegetables and fruits we, you can chop them up finely but I find that it makes it I want to help my little wormies and I make it easier for them and um, and so we put uh, blitzed up in a in a juicer or a not a juicer like a smoothie maker blender um, blitz up all our vegetable and fruit scraps and pour it mix some water in pour it over it the worms go crazy for it and it produces liquid gold basically. Mm. So you've got a little tap at the end of the worm farm and it then produces this kind of dark, very dark liquid, which when you pour onto plants, they go crazy because it is just, it's all this filtered um, worm poo basically. And it's amazing. So not only are we helping, um, we're creating a really nice cycle where it's, you know, our food scraps go to the worms, which go to the plants, which go to growing, which come back to the worms. And one day when we have land, we will have bees so that we can also Mm. give bees a better life, hopefully help replenish the bees. But I'm sure, you know, even me just, you know, germaphobe me, who's really working hard at becoming less phobic of germs me putting my hands in with the worms and smoothing this stuff out in my own little way I'm probably exposing myself to some you know microorganisms that are probably helping my oh yeah I'm sure it's it's both going on in there yeah it's really interesting so we've talked about worm farming composting growing you know this is a very natural way of approaching but are there any supplements or foods that you know, we could be making sure we're adding into our diet uh, to ensure that we're giving our microbiota the best chance. You know, my my default, my own default, is uh, is basically looking and studying everything through kind of the Paleolithic lens. You know, how did we evolve? Um, technically, if you're healthy, you you should be able to survive on food and water, and in my case, um, some scotch. But uh, Occasionally, if you if you find a specific or suspect a specific deficiency, you know there are many supplements that can be, you know, quite helpful. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, pancreatic deficiency. Your pancreas produces the digestive enzymes, lipase, amylase, and protease. And uh, apparently, there's some data that indicates it's underdiagnosed that a lot of people may not make adequate amounts of, of these digestive enzymes and have undiagnosed pancreas problems. So there's not much of a downside for um, adding a digestive enzyme supplement. Um, and so I think that's a pretty safe and, and, also, and, and, and a lot of people really do benefit from that. The same goes with uh, some people take, uh, claim apple cider vinegar helps them if they're deficient in stomach acid or believe they're deficient in betaine HCL. So some people benefit from that. You know, I personally, um, you know, knock on wood, I'm not taking, I don't take anything right now, nothing. But um, I do think there are a whole variety of things. The, the most important thing I think is to, is to try to understand what's wrong first. It, there are some people that may not be digesting fats very well, and it could be a lipase enzyme issue, but it could also be a bile issue. And bile is a really interesting process, you know, of, of making and, and supplying to the gut. I have some of the bugs from the compost pile crawling around in my sandal. You know, it, bile is produced in the liver, but the bile pools are actually regulated by both the liver and gut bacteria. And so if that's off, some people may benefit from taking like ox bile. 
On the other hand, if uh, somebody else has a an issue with chronic diarrhea, there's a number of potential causes, including just uh, SIBO and too much hydrogen gas. But some people may be suffering from something called BAM for bile acid malabsorption. And because bile is secreted by the gallbladder into the small intestine to help you digest fats. And then it's a valuable cholesterol-type molecule. Your body wants to recycle it to, to avoid having to make more. So at the end of the, towards the end of the small intestine, it recycles it back to the liver. But some people may be malabsorbing some of that bile, and when even small amounts, more than a few percent, gets into the large intestine, it causes diarrhea. So in that case, and this would be more, you know, talk to your doctor is more of a prescription medicine, but there are bile acid sequestrants to tie up some of that excess bile if that's the problem. Uh, so the list goes, you know, on and on and on. But the, I think the most important point I, I would say is try to understand what the problem is first, and then um, <laughs> it's not a bug, it's the tablecloth that's too long. <laughs> Just discover that. Um, you know, try, try to understand what the, what, the <laughs> what the problem is and then go from there. Uh, I'm laughing because I am, you know, you see those memes where someone says, I saw a spider and then there's a whole burning house. That's me. And so with you jumping, I'm like, it's coming to me next. <laughs> so I'm really glad it was, it was a just dangling the tablecloth, not, a, just the not tablecloth. a bug or a mouse or a bird. <laughs> this is what happens when you do uh, live <laughs> podcast recordings. Norm Robillard, it's been wonderful to be here in your garden at your house. Um, uh, and thank you so much for talking through, uh, you know, all things microbiota and, and also the fast track diet. It's been great having you back on the show. And if anybody wants to re-listen to the first podcast that I did with you, they can head to the show notes and I've got that episode linked. We have a wonderful audience sitting yes, here with us, yes. which is wonderful. So we may take some live questions. Does anybody have a question that they'd like to ask? Uh, a question Nancy takes probiotics and digestive enzymes. Now, there, there are so many that you see on the shelves. It's more and more. Is this, are they natural or is there foods that she can be taking instead of uh, mm. taking these, these pills? Is it a good thing? Mm. You know, once three million, once a hundred billion. It's just confusing to me. I don't mm. take them, but Nancy does. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and the amount matters too. Because in some studies on probiotics, they were effective at uh, you know, maybe 8 billion colony-forming units, not at 7, and not at 9. So some people take, take one of those and two of those and three of those, and they might be out of that range where they were effective. Um, the other thing is probiotics, they're in their infancy. I mean, you, you wouldn't think that with all of the marketing material, but... Um, you think of the power of a fecal microbiota transplantation, the full complement of, of somebody who's healthy, their gut microbes. And then you think of these one or two or three, four strains, and uh, it's no wonder that they haven't done tremendously well in the clinic. Um, but there are some that seem to be helpful. It's still early. Uh, Bacillus clausii. These bacillus strains, and again, I used to work in a bacillus lab, um, they make some natural antibiotics, and so that there's some data that, that the strain is good for SIBO. Um, uh, Bifidobacteria lactis was, came, rose to the surface in, in um, a study, uh, a meta-analysis for constipation is one of the best ones. But when you look at the actual data, it, the improvement was one bowel movement a week. So I think you have to temper you know, really look at the data because the marketing material will be out of this world. And so there are some good ones. I think one of the best things you can do is is have a little sauerkraut, a tablespoon of sauerkraut or a little, you know, the lacto-fermented pickles we talked about because then you do get a wide, a broad variety of uh, gut-healthy probiotics. I hear a lot of people talk about constipation, Norm. Can you touch a little bit on that and what you do recommend because we are cutting out carbohydrates? A lot of people get stuck with the meat and the fish and the chicken and not enough good mm. stuff to keep you moving. Yeah, and, I, and that question, it's a great question and it's a huge question and, and it's a challenging problem. 
if if you happen to have that. And uh, the very you know, and I do work with a lot of people. I consult with a lot of people that have constipation and they're struggling with that. And we actually have a fairly detailed kind of protocol, tip sheet, whatever you want to call it, that we work our way through. There are some really simple, basic things to do early on because that might solve the problem. Um, there's a tremendous amount of uh, medicines and even supplements that have constipation as a as a side effect. And so, um, and and I do work with people. They can be taking 40 supplements a day. You know, somehow they they found this one was good, and somebody told them to take that one. And the next thing you know, they're taking 40. And so, first thing I said is, first of all. Um, Either you or I, somebody has to do this and look these all up and see if any of these have constipation as a side effect. And by the way, you might want to reduce those to five supplements, and then we can work from there. Um, so drugs and supplements, especially in anything narcotic-based, some people you know, taking things that they don't even know can cause constipation. Uh, there's some other basic things you want to know. Somebody with constipation, it might be a good idea to get um, a hydrogen-methane breath test where... You drink a lactulose sugar solution, and then you blow into a tube you know, every 15 minutes, and they're watching the gases that are being produced as that sugar is going through your digestive tract. And people that are methane producers, usually even the zero sample will have very high methane, which just shows, you know, like with hydrogen, as the, um, uh, yeah, with hydrogen, as the lactulose meets the bacteria in the small intestine, you will start to get more of this hydrogen, and you can record it as kind of a, a peak and fall with methane people will oftentimes just have high methane even before at the zero time point before they drank the sugar solution suggesting that there's organisms in their gut producing methane all the time and we do know um, and work from uh, Mark Pemmentel's lab at Cedar sinai and, and others that uh, methane is a very constipating gas and some people produce a lot of it and some people don't even produce detectable detectable levels but it's at least good to know if you're a high methane producer because if you are that's where you should start focusing on okay how where's that coming from how do i how do i control that because these archaea organisms and not bacteria that produce methane here's how they're doing it they're taking hydrogen that bacteria in the gut are making from fermenting carbohydrates. There's the carbohydrate connection. They're fermenting the carbs, making the hydrogen. Oftentimes people with high methane have very little hydrogen because it's all being converted, oxidized into methane by these archaea. And so on the one hand, it serves a purpose. It gets rid of all this hydrogen gas. It, uh, it frees up bacteria to even produce more energy. So there's, there's, a, there's a, always goes back to an evolutionary advantage for energy conservation. But at the same time, this methane is very constipating. So one thing that, that I do recommend people try is, is less of these fermentable carbohydrates. Really cut back on them because at least there's a rationale, if not an outright study on it, a rationale that if you have less of this hydrogen fuel, you should, in principle, have less of this methane gas being produced. And so that's, you know, that's really the tip of the iceberg. It's a challenging problem, and there's, there's a lot to it, but, um, and there's a lot more you can do. Remember we talked about um, BAM, bile acid malabsorption, leading to diarrhea? Um, it may be possible that if you actually induced a little bile malabsorption, maybe you would help with the constipation. Again, some of these things... There's some scientific principles you can think about, but there's not a lot of data to go on, but you've just got to use the rationale and the biochemistry to say, well, this seems pretty reasonable to try this, a little uh, ox bile. Maybe it won't work. But So mostly understanding the problem, but a little bit maybe of just some anecdotal stuff and maybe even a little experimentation. And Dr. Alison Seebecker also has um, some great information on her website for when you just need some immediate support. And, uh, and she lists a whole series of um, you know, magnesium and, and various supplements that you can take that might give you temporary solution. But what I really like about what you're talking about, Norm, is that it's, you've, we've all got to get to the underlying cause. The body doesn't naturally want to be in a constipated state. That's not normal for us to be. And so if we 
if we only deal with it through supplementation, through you know topical treatments, so to speak, we're never addressing the underlying cause. So they can be really beneficial for temporary solutions, Yes. But it's not yeah. a permanent solution. And, yeah, right. And, and magnesium salts are one of the best ones. But it is, I like what you said because it's interesting. Um, I've talked to people before and, and I said, well, do you suffer from constipation? No, not at all. As long as I take my magnesium. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so you can also mask things by supplementation. Um, and so you just, you, you want to do whatever you can to keep your body in a natural balance while at the same time addressing some of these pesky problems. So just a question, uh, you mentioned the, about the hydrogen, if you try to cut down on the hydrogen to prevent the fermentation and the gases, what about water, H2O? You're consuming a lot of hydrogen when you drink a lot of water, are you not? Uh, so yes, you, you are, um, but you are consuming it covalently bonded to oxygen. So unless you have like electrolysis going on in your gut, that hydrogen won't be freed up from the oxygen. So water should be pretty much stable, except when it's involved in the chemical reactions. So I don't know, maybe maybe I need to think about that one a little bit, a little bit more deeply. What about the people that are reacting to water? There's people, we see it on, I see it online all the time where they say, I've, ju- I've drunk water and now I'm so bloated. Um, why can't I even tolerate water? Do you have any th- thoughts on that? Well, my first question would be, um, okay, water's bloating you now, but what have you been eating lately? Let's see. <laughs> because the answer is probably in there. So I haven't done a lot of reading on the fast track diet, but I'm curious, uh, the low FODMAP diet they suggest, mm. or I've read, you shouldn't do that super long term um, because you're missing out on a lot of nutrients. And you, you sort of get stuck in this really uh, strict groupings of foods. How long do you suggest the fast track diet to be? And does is that like a treatment plan for people with IBS or does that need to be coupled with herbals or you know the whole SIBO type of treatment you know a super question super question and you know uh, I'm not a spokesperson for the FODMAP diet but I don't I honestly don't know why they are so worried about that diet not being safe long term just doesn't seem like a big concern for me I don't I don't really understand it so the fast track diet I feel like you're getting fats you're getting protein you're eating head-to-tail animals and fatty fish and plenty of vegetables like we just talked about. Uh, I've been eating this way for 14 years, and I don't, I don't know, I don't understand what the problem is. Uh, of course, you, when you're very stringent and strict with the diet, if you're in the throes of a lot of uh, challenging symptoms, you know, that, you probably don't want to eat like that all the time. I mean, you don't want to be just eating, you know, lettuce and and a piece of you know white fish and that's you do want to have a diverse diet but you should if you follow these the principles the three kind of strategies in there that you should be able to tolerate a more diverse diet um but i wouldn't jump the gun and a week later i'm ready for my diverse diet maybe two weeks or three weeks or maybe six months that you do have to really watch these but i it, in, in my mind, I, I really do believe that, that, you know, fact that carbohydrates are not required. And, and a lot of people feel like they just literally need them, but that it's, it's not a nutrient that the body requires. Whereas proteins and fats, there are essential proteins, there are essential fats. You'll die without, without them. Not so with carbohydrates. And even all the vitamins and minerals, you can get those from eating organ meat. So I just don't know what the big warriors myself um thank you so much for coming on the show and thanks to our gorgeous audience for asking some really interesting questions so if somebody would like to reach out and connect with you how can they do so well the best place to um to get a hold of us is uh, uh they they can go to digestivehealthinstitute.org and if they want to consult with me they can go to the con- consultation tab and there's actually a phone number they can just give us a call and uh, lately, I'm, I've been handling the phones lately quite a bit, so I, oftentimes people are surprised I'm picking up the phone myself. Hello? Hello? Who's that? So they can call us. Uh, they can join our Fast Track Diet Facebook group, official Facebook group. We're up to about 6,000 members. Donna? 
And uh, we're having a lot of fun on that. It's amazing how many recipes are being shared and uh, some very positive stuff happening there. And they can, get, they can find the uh, Fast Track Diet mobile app on uh, fasttrackdiet.com, but you can also link to it through the digestivehealthinstitute.org. And I've got links to all of those places in the show notes. Ah, thank you. Norm Robillard, thanks so much for coming back on yes, the Healthy Gut my, Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I had so much fun recording it with Dr. Norm Robillard in his gorgeous garden in Boston. If you would like to get access to the show notes from today's episode or any of the links mentioned, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash microbiome. And there you will be able to link back to the original podcast we did together some months ago where we delve deeply into the fast track diet. You can also link to the Digestive Health Institute website and his own Fast Track Diet Facebook group, as well as be able to see the mobile app for the Fast Track Diet. You can also download a free ebook that explains the Fast Track Diet. I downloaded this some months ago when I wanted to know more about the diet and it's a really helpful resource. So make sure you head to the healthy gut dot co forward slash microbiome so that you can get all of those resources now i love hearing your feedback so make sure you head to itunes or the app you use to listen to this podcast and leave a rating and review it really does matter for other people who are coming to the podcast and they want to know if this is the right podcast for them particularly those people who have SIBO And if you think that anybody uh, that you know could benefit from listening to this podcast, make sure you share the episode with them. And I love hearing your suggestions, your feedback, anything that you'd like to share with me. So drop me an email at info at thehealthygut.co. And we're hanging out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest and Google+. Just look for us under The Healthy Gut. We love seeing you there. Coming up on next week's show, I'm joined by nutritionist Angela Pfeiffer and we're coming to you from another live recording of the Healthy Gut Podcast. This time we're in Seattle and we talk about something that I find really important and that is facing our food fears. It's so common for people with SIBO to become really fearful of food and we talk about why this happens and what we can do about it if we recognise it is happening to us. So I look forward to seeing you next week on the Healthy Gut Podcast. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. And as we are fully funding this podcast, if you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast so that we can continue to bring you future episodes, all you need to do is make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Belinda Coombs for the production, editing and original music score of this podcast. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.